Welcome to the Tools for Today's Farmers podcast, brought to you by the Purdue Extension Farm Stress Team. Our podcast will cover current issues in farming and will provide insight from a wide variety of experts in agriculture. Now let's get farm strong. Hello and welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Rachel Delhoff. And I'm your co-host, Abby Heidenreich. Today, we are happy to have Dr. Jason Lusk and Dr. Todd Keithy joining us from Purdue University Agricultural Economics and Center for Commercial Ag. So let's start off with some introductions uh, from Todd and Jason. I don't know who wants to go first, but tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I can go first. Um, Jason Lusk, I'm the uh, professor and the head of the Agricultural Economics Department here at Purdue. Most of my research focuses on the consumer end of the food supply chain and trying to understand the impacts of food policy, consumer demand issues, but you know, with an eye towards the implications of, of that for the farm sector. Uh, I suspect uh, Todd's going to be your go-to guy for all the hard questions about you know, what's happening in the, the, the farm economy, and um, uh, he's, he's our real expert on that topic. Uh, I, I don't know about that. Don't sell yourself short there, Jason, or don't pump me up too much. My name is Todd Keithy, and I'm an associate professor here in the department. And I also hold a Schrader chair in farmland economics. So I, my broad, broadest area of research is in agricultural finance. So what, how is agricultural uh, production finance, particularly in the Corn Belt um, region of the United States, with a big emphasis on farmland values? So farmland accounts for about 80% of the value of all the assets in the sector, it's everybody's retirement plan. It's uh, a big source of collateral. Um, and it's also a lot of where decisions made uh, in the farm in terms of intergenerational transfer and management. Um, and so I get to touch on a lot of fun areas. I'm, my, I describe my research program as I'm interested in anything that affects the price of farmland. And I'm interested that anything that's touched by farmland price changes. Great. Now, did you get into this field from personal experience or was it just something that you grew up with, you were interested in, and this is when it, what you wanted to do for a living? For me personally, I, you know, I, I don't really know. I feel like we always kind of write narratives after the fact that sort of makes sense, but in real time, it feels like chaos. Um, I, you know, I've always been somebody that's interested in economic issues. And, and I remember my first year of college, I nearly flunked out my first semester. Uh, and then my second semester, I took an economics class and I had a wonderful teacher and something about that. I just said, like, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life is study economics uh, as sort of the uh, the big catch. And then kind of found my way. You know, I grew up in a rural area in the Ozarks in southern Missouri. Um, and so a lot of my things that I was naturally drawn to research question wise were related to ag and rural areas. Um, and I had a wonderful professor. I, I didn't go to an ag college. I didn't really know much about ag colleges. And I had a wonderful professor when I said, you know, I want you to study economics more. And he said, well, what are the questions that motivate you? And I kind of told him some things I understood. And he said, well, you know, there are departments that just study the economics of agriculture. And I said, I have no idea where do I find one of these? Uh, <laughs> and it just kind of spiraled since then. But it's, it's, it's mostly just driven by, you know, things that uh, motivate me to want to understand a little bit more. Absolutely. I think like Todd, I'd say uh, there's a lot of randomness to, to life. I feel like I'm still 46 years old and trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> Just, you know, kind of stumble along into the next things that, that happen. Um, maybe a little like Todd, I grew up in a very rural area, in my case, in, in the West, in West Texas, in the Texas Panhandle. So my family wasn't directly involved in agriculture, although my grandparents on both sides had been. Uh, but I, I grew up in the summers working on neighbors' cotton farms. Uh, we always had animals for 4-H and FFA. So I was around agriculture a lot. I, I knew I didn't want to be hoeing cotton weeds for the rest of my life. So, um, but but I really liked that connection and I, I, the people that I got to know and the industry I enjoyed. Uh, I got an undergraduate degree in food science um, for a variety of reasons that uh, that's a longer story perhaps. But I had an intro to ag economics class that I absolutely hated. Uh, did not like it. Terrible class. Went off, you know, was doing my food science degree, did a couple of internships, worked in some food processing plants and realized uh, that probably wasn't for me. I didn't, you know, it was, I enjoyed what I was learning, but I didn't, you know, think I wanted to be wearing a hairnet when I was my age now and, and thought there might be some other opportunities. So I went back. I remember I told my advisor. So Todd's mentioning an interesting, you know, thing too. these, these professors, you know, that you, you meet 
can have big impacts on your life. And I remember he told me, he said, uh, I was thinking about an MBA. He said, you don't want to get an MBA. Like ag, ag's been good to you. Like think about ag econ. I thought, oh man. So I went and took a senior level like ag econ class and loved it. And, you know, you get the right teacher. It can make all the difference in the world. And, and I guess the rest is history um, um, in terms of my ag econ career. It is interesting the way life works and gets you to where you need to go. So it sounds like neither one of you are from Indiana, but how long have you been in Indiana then? So I've been here a little longer than Todd. I think for both of us, this is our second visit back to Purdue, but I've been here for about three and a half years. This is going my fourth academic year. Um, So I came in as the department head. I had previously been at Oklahoma State on faculty there for about 12 years, but before that I'd been on faculty here. So in the early 2000s, I'd spent a few years on faculty at, at Purdue um, before leaving for an opportunity there. But you know, why, why come back? I mean, I think if you wanna be at a place where agriculture matters and where you, where you can, perhaps where your work can really make an impact, this is a kind of place where you can do that. That was what was really attractive to me about about being in Indiana and about being at Purdue and then Indiana just there's, you know, it just seems like there's so many great connections, both with agribusiness, uh, with, you know, policy, and that it's just a confluence of great network connections and a great school. So for me, it was um, a really great opportunity to come back to, to be at Purdue. Yeah, this is my uh, start of my second year on faculty, although these have been such weird years. Uh, it feels like I just got here uh, a couple of weeks ago in some ways. Uh, but I, I did my PhD here. I finished in 2009, in the, in the fall of 2009. And then uh, I had worked at the USDA initially, and then I was at the University of Illinois for a while. Um, and then this position popped up, and I was able to convince Jason and his colleagues that I would be the uh, successful in, in, in working here if they hired me. And so it uh, just kind of all worked out. Uh, but we, we love Indiana. My, uh, my, I have a wife and two little kids, and, and, and we love it here. It's great. Todd's being too modest. We went and uh, recruited him and arm twisted and tried to get him to come. So I'm glad we were successful. (laughs) Awesome. Well, so before we dive into the deeper topic of stress um, and the economics of it, we want to kind of start with a fun activity to get to know everybody a little bit better. So um, let's go, let's start with Todd and then Jason, you can go. Um, what is your favorite place of all of the places that you've traveled? Ooh, mm, I don't know if I can pick one. Uh, so my family, we have a uh, Volkswagen camper van and we like to go around and explore the national parks. Um, we had a really nice surprise. Uh, we were able to go to uh, the Badlands in the Black Hills this summer and that was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, Acadia National Park in Maine is probably my favorite place I've ever been. Mm. All right. I was glad I had a few minutes to think about that, and you <laughs> asked Todd first, Abby. That was helpful. Uh, my family, we were fortunate uh, several years ago to get to do a sabbatical in France in Paris, and that um, was a great experience for our family. And so I think we, were, we weren't even there a whole year, but between half a year and a year, and um, so I, I still think that has a special spot in my heart, you know, for uh, for those reasons, but probably uh, my in-laws have a lake cabin, which those are the best kind of lake cabins to have, the ones that your in-laws pay for and take care of. Uh, so that, that's our other special spot we go whenever we, uh, you know, seems like the stress uh, falls away as soon as you uh, enter there. And that's uh, in Todd's neck of the woods in the, uh, where he grew up in the Ozarks nice. kind of Arkansas. Very nice. Well, it sounds like you guys have, you know, some places to go where you can de-stress out. So Think about those because I'm about to ask you about stress. So everyone is experiencing stress, especially right now, which I'm sure is making your line of work even more interesting with everything going on. But how do you guys personally deal with stressful situations? Yeah, that that's a tough question. I think, um, you know, Todd's the finance guy here, but often you try to make sure before stresses happen that you diversify, (laughs) Um, you know, the old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, So I think in terms of my own, you know, research career, those kinds of things, I try to be working on a number of different things at once, Uh, add some stress at times, but it also means if any one of them fails that the things tend to go, you know, it's not the end of the world. uh, If things, and I think it helps to have supportive family and friends around you and colleagues and sometimes you can't control that all the time. You don't get to pick your families, but 
that uh, they're cer certainly having somebody to complain to when things get stressful have been uh, very helpful on my end. And I know not everybody has that luxury all the time, but having having a, a kind ear to listen whenever you vent um, is useful. And I think taking the long view, I mean, I think also things get kind of tough in the moment, but if you can look at things in kind of a broader perspective, I think, you know, our, our Department of Agricultural he Economics here at Purdue, this is our hundredth year anniversary. So, you, you know, you look back, man, this department survived a lot of stuff in a hundred years. Um, and you look at the things people before you were able to do and sometimes that were really challenging too. And it, I think it gives me both a sense of history, but also some optimism about the future that, wow, if they could go through some of the stuff they went through, we, we can, as a department, survive and thrive, even though it feels pretty tough right now. In fact, um, right when this COVID shutdown stuff happened, uh, we had a retired faculty member, probably some of your listeners will know him, Larry Bull was a, a, a you know, very impactful teacher and advisor for a lot of students over the years. He came in the office, he's in his 90s now. And I said, you know, Larry, this boy, these are unusual times, aren't they? And he said, you know, we, I had to shut down school for a year when I was growing up because of the polio epidemic. So, you know, you kind of kind of helps you put things in perspective. Like, you know, yes, it feels really unusual and it is really unusual, but you know, people have been through some stuff before. And I think that's providing that kind of long, longer perspective is, is helpful for me. Yeah. So, uh, so I kind of have uh, a big three uh, for me, which one is my wife. Uh, she's a, a nurse by training. So it really helps put things in perspective, uh, you know, getting a paper rejected or having students that are bored in a, a lecture is really minor compared to uh, the issues she gets to interact with in terms of um, health and, and important family decisions that are made there. Uh, the second one is I, I always find I'm, I'm naturally a bit introverted. And so I find times for quiet either. Uh, and sometimes that's things like going for a run or I've gotten into yoga a lot over the COVID. Uh, and so finding times to sort of uh, reflect and think and focus and, and find some presence. And then in the third and not to get too heavy, but uh, since it's a podcast about stress is that, um, you know, I, I, I rely a lot on uh, mental health professionals. So I have a psychologist that I see um, it, it's somewhat regular frequency in, in past. I've also had a psychiatrist that I've worked with. Um, and so I, am someone who needs a little bit, uh, extra attention in terms of, um, I've got to be a little bit more diligent in understanding what my stress levels are and what's driving them and, and monitoring my, my eating and my sleep and, and, uh, exercise a little bit more than some other folks. Um, and so, uh, you know, relying on professionals and experts in that way. And maybe that's part of being a professor again, that, you, you know, you, when you build some sort of expertise, you, you tend to find a uh, desire to find expertise for uh, from other people in, in places where you need it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of those things, too, that we talk about, uh, especially when it comes to stigma and the agricultural community. It's something that we found through research and talking to people. They don't like to talk about that kind of stuff, uh, but it's there. They experience it every day. And there are those people there, professionals that will help. Um, and I think too, with COVID, we've seen that instead of going to a place, a lot of things have been virtual, which is helpful in a lot of ways, but then also it sort of hinders those people that don't have access to the internet or computer stuff like that. So there's still a long way to go, but to make it more of a conversation and make it more, um, it's okay to go for these types of sources to, to help with stress and manage that. And I know Abby's going to ask a, a farm stress question here in just a moment, but. Can I, can I, can I piggyback one little thing here? Just kind of a pet area, but uh, with, with the move, so moving just for COVID and actually finding uh, a new counselor in COVID, it's actually been really nice because we still meet in person, uh, but we wear masks. And I've actually found that having the mask because then you just see somebody's eyes. It actually, it, it makes things a lot easier. It makes it a lot easier to kind of, to talk about things where you're, you, you've got that little bit of security blanket. So there's, there's one nice thing about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so to get into a little bit of the farm stress topic, I wanna talk a little bit um, about the economic side of things and how it's impacting farmers, farm families, and also consumers too. Um, so liquidity, the ability to transform or convert assets to cash quickly um, is something that has kind of been a little bit of discussion around. 
the current ratio, according to USDA, um, which is current assets divided by current debt, is forecasted to decrease uh, in 2020 from 1.76 in 2019 to 1.62. So can you elaborate a little bit on that in farm debt in general? Talk a little bit about the impact on farmers um, and how that, that decrease in liquidity and the, the farm debt kind of problem has affected the stress levels. Sure. Uh, so I can kind of start with this one. Uh, so I used to work, like I mentioned, I worked at the USDA and I actually worked in the branch that creates a lot of those financial measures um, that we see. We talk about, you know, what's sort of the farm position. One of the things I kind of also have to point out and maybe gets a little bit technical and into the weeds here, but those numbers really don't represent any person. Um, so when they look at something like a current ratio, they're calculating for the whole sector, what are the components of those ratios and then looking at the ratio across the whole sector. And so the, you know, the ratio of averages is very different than the, than the ratio, or sorry, the ratio of average is very different than the average of a bunch of ratios. Um, and so we have a lot of farmers who have really good solvency positions, really good liquidity positions. And then we have farmers that are challenged in both of those areas and those big aggregate numbers Although they point at sort of where is the sector as a whole, um, it's a lot more like thinking about, you know, GDP or unemployment, very large, instead of looking at sort of a farm financial level. Um, and so that's the one thing I kind of always want to sort of point out with those is that those numbers are often very hard to move and, and they're very slow to move. So if you look at our, you know, our, our debt to asset ratio or current ratio as a sector, it still looks, you know, very similar to what it did 10, 15 years ago. Um, the difference is we have those, those dispersions of farms. And so we have sort of a cluster of farms who are really challenged in, in some ways and a cluster of farms who are doing really well. Um, and so it, it's, it's a little bit hard to tell, but um, you know, the, 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 the current ratio kind of working capital issues and you, and you mentioned solvency. Um, you know, so one of the challenges with, with the ag sector, you know, as somebody that studies farmland is, you know, 80% of our assets are in land. Uh, the next big chunk are in things like machinery or breeding stock. Uh, so things that are a little bit harder, you know, when, when uh, you know, if we get into a little pin, pinch financially in my household, um, you know, I don't have to think about, you know, how do I, it, it's hard to sell $10,000 worth of farmland, right? If you need some sort of, you know, sort of small amount, um, it's really easy to sell a million dollars worth of farmland, um, but it's hard to sell sort of 10,000. It's hard to even buy, you know, $10,000. So it makes it really hard to make those small adjustments um, where you have have those needs, and and I mean I think that's I think it's a big important uh, part of the financial stress. Absolutely, yeah. and I think sometimes too when they, you talk about um, these ratios and things, it is important to point out that you know these farmers are hearing these stats coming over the radio, they're hearing these stats in the news, and that itself almost inflicts a certain level of stress because they're you know they. They take that to heart, and I, I love that you point that out, that it's not always representative of individual groups um, of farmers, and that it's important to take your farm and your financial standing into account when you're, when you're hearing about, you know, the direction of, of um, these rates moving in one, in one way or another. Yeah, and, and I think the other, the other flip side of that is that it can also give a false sense of security uh, when you think about the sector. If you look at, you know, so farm incomes are going up. Um, according to USDA numbers. Um, but there's definitely farms where the incomes are not going up or incomes are down or, or stagnant. Um, and so these big, I mean, one of the challenges as an economist always is, you know, we look at big aggregate data um, to give us some information, but it, it'll, it'll hide what we call heterogeneity or the variability that's sort of in, in that sort of broad population. But I think that it goes maybe back to some of the stress discussion. There's a lot of those things completely outside an individual producer's control. So yeah. that Todd mentioned that, you know, farm income has been going up a big chunk of that is because of government payments, essentially those payments, who they go to the, the sort of constrictors around that are set by policy. And sometimes they're being kind of random, <laughs> you know, ad hoc, ad, uh, increasingly ad hoc over the last several years. Um, and so that, you know, a lot of that's kind of outside one's control. And I think even the farmland side of this is, you know, Todd's much more expert here than I am, but at least in terms of the, the asset remaining valuable, um, the, the fact that interest rates have remained low have been very helpful in, in propping up land values 
It's also made borrowing more affordable as well. But you know, you get a big change in, in interest rates that could have really big effects both on the value of your asset, but then also the ability to borrow. But that's outside any individual producer's um, control. Although you know, one can again try to think about how to prepare oneself if if that eventuality occurred so that you, you're not too exposed to something like that. Do you think that smaller farmers are more impacted than the larger farms? You know, that's really tough to say. Um, and again, I know I've sort of kind of gone at this idea of how, you know, different farms are, but there's also all different kinds of small farms. Um, so the, there's small farms that are trying to make a living and hopes of growing their business or serving some niche that can they can sustain as a small farm. And then, you know, like where I grew up in Southern Missouri, there's a ton of small farmers that if they make any money, they go buy fence posts because they're it's really their sort of secondary interest and they're more, they, they don't want to get taxed on their farm. It's kind of their, their major driver. And so it's really tough to tell. I mean, larger farms tend to be more sophisticated. Um, there are things that you can spread costs across, you know, large things or you can allow people within your business to specialize. So you can have someone that manages the agronomic decisions, somebody that manages the marketing decisions. Um, and so that, that can be nice, but then also, I mean, bigger groups can be hard. Jason can maybe talk about this, but you know, big groups of individuals can, can create stress in managing a, a, in a big group. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I, I have a tough time ever sort of thinking that one group uh, would be more susceptible or less susceptible to stress than another. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the data, depends on which classification you look at, but, you know, USDA, ERS, they classify like small farms. The average income of those farms is negative. Um, and it, some, of, some of that is to Todd's point that, you know, if they're like, some of those might be lifestyle kind of farms that it's, it's a hobby or something. Uh, that's certainly not all of them. Uh, it's also the case, even across small and large, that often there's a spouse working off farm. And so it's in some cases a supplemental income for some people. So I think even in thinking about small farms, there are different types. Um, and I might put, you know, is it a small farm that's trying to make an entire living off of that farm? And I might pay a lot different kinds of attention to that farm versus one that's, you know, more of a lifestyle sort of operation or something like that. I think, you know, this COVID situation has been really interesting because, um, you know, the, the vulnerabilities, at least in the, well, not only the early part of the pandemic, but now, depended a lot on the extent to which one's customers were selling to food away from home segments. So if you're a small farm that was catering to sort of these kind of higher end restaurant kind of operations, due to really no fault of your own, you're probably in, in some pretty tough shape because your, your customers were really adversely affected. Whereas, you know, you, you can imagine some other smaller farms that have had a different marketing strategy, strategy just by chance, you know, in some ways that um, catered more to food at home um, that, that probably did fine through, through some of this. So I guess we're both Todd and I are giving you good economic answers, which are, uh, it depends. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, on this hand, one group did fine. And on another hand, this other group uh, didn't do so well. well and you brought up a really good point. I mean, I know it does depend. It's not a one size fits all. I grew up uh, in a farm family, a small farm, um, and I remember my grandpa, as times were tough, he would sell off little plots of land, and that was how he made ends meet, and family members would always say, why are you doing this? It's obviously not panning out. You're selling little bits of your farm every year, but he loved it so much um, that he kept doing it, and it was really neat. Now looking back, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I could do that. But if you love something so much, you, you do what makes you happy. Um, in your line of work, do you see that with farmers that maybe they should take a step back or have somebody say, hey, whoa, this isn't a good decision. And what do you tell those people? Well, so to your to your point, Rachel, I, I was reading a study just the other day. I won't, I won't get into all the weeds about how they estimated it, but essentially, uh, how much would you be willing to pay to be a farmer? Essentially, you know, how much value do you get out of having this occupation? And farmers, compared to other occupations, really value being a farmer. And and so I, it's hard to say. Like, is that so? Will, would they make 
quote unquote irrational decisions sometimes to be a farmer, that might be one way to look at it. But the other way to say is that they, they derive you know, something out of their value of their life, the lifestyle and who they want to be uh, to make some decisions. So in that context, you know, Rachel, you're, you're not that for your grandfather, that probably was not an irrational decision because it's what enabled him to, you know, continue in, in with a lifestyle and an occupation that he really loved. And there's something valuable to that. Uh, but, you know, that being said, I think, you know, I think one of the things we try to do here at Purdue is give people the tool set to, to help make more informed and more reasoned decisions. And I think, um, you know, one does want to take, take a step back and make sure they're not just doing, doing things because they've always done it this way. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of dynamics happening in food and agriculture. And I think one has to be forward looking and um, put the numbers to it and, and try to rely on some of the numbers about, you know, what decisions you're making, but that doesn't mean it has to drive everything. Um, you still have preferences about the way things you want to outcome, but at least you can use that as a, at least, you know, the, you know, the consequences of the choices you're making, I would say. Yeah. I had, uh, when I was at the university of Illinois, I taught farm management and I had the students do a uh, course project where they had to evaluate some management decision. Um, and, and most of them were from a farm. So they wrote about farms, but people, all sorts of different management decisions that were, they were analyzed, but I remember a couple of them was like, I had a student that looked at whether or not to update their record keeping and accounting system to something that's a little bit more software driven. Um, but the choice there was that, you know, essentially that would lay off their grandma, that that's how she was involved with the business. Um, and another one where they were looking at, you know, extend, ex, uh, they had a, a mix of grains and cattle and, you know, how do they have that rate, that balance right? And they realized that, you know, Look, just looking at the at the dollars and cents, they should get rid of their cattle operation entirely. But that was what her brother did, and that's what he brought to the business. And so, you know, if if they wanted to just totally be dollars and cents driven, then they would be growing nothing but seed corn. But um, you know, they there was an interest in keeping the whole family involved. And so, I mean, that's the other thing too is, that, you know, I mean, I think in some ways, I think the farm sector does a disservice to itself uh, by saying, you know, like we're families and working as a family. Uh, and, and, and painting it as some sort of uh, dream, but really, I mean, it's it's often much harder to work with your family. Um, I mean, it's much easier to tell tell a stranger that no, you have to do this uh, than, than somebody you love and care about. So, our uh, uh, Nicole Woodmar is a professor in our department. She teaches our Intro to Farm Management class, and she just won a, a award for the outstanding undergraduate teacher. And so, I saw her give her lecture about that. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about exactly what Todd is referring to, and she, you know, says she really encourages her students to say, you know, have this kind of come to Jesus meeting with your family, like, what is the objective here? Is it, is it family first, or is the business first, or what, you know, what are we, let's come to some agreement about what our objective is here, because uh, you're going to make different decisions depending on, on whether it's the family that comes first, or the farm that comes first, or what, you know, and I thought that was really uh, almost kind of obvious, but also insightful you know, thing to say. Yeah, exactly. Because you think about if you're talking to your, you see your family every day, how do you go from family to, okay, we need to stop a second and let's have a business meeting. That would be a hard transition to make and you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and you're going to be at all the holidays together. You're going to see everyone. So you know, you do have to walk on eggshells a little bit. So that, that's a very interesting point. Yeah, and, and, and being in the generation now where I'm dealing with both childcare and elder care, uh, I mean, th there's a lot of difficult decisions that, that families have to make together independent of a business. Um, and so intertwining that part of it is, um, it, it's a real challenge. And both of those are not cheap. So um, definitely is a big financial <laughs> Yeah, and as an economist, I would say it's not just it's not just the uh, the the dollars and cents of it, also, but the your labor time and, and your and your management time. I mean, it, it eats into that as well. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about a tool that the Center for Commercial Ag called the Ag Barometer. Um, so I want you to guys to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Tell us about it and how you think farm stress plays into the. Uh, the readings of the ag barometer, if you will. So that, that's a product that uh, is uh, funded in part by the by the CME uh, group and our colleagues, Jim Mintert 
and Michael Engelmeyer are really the driving forces behind that that tool. So um, if you really want to do a deep deep dive, you can do. They can tell you more than I can, but I'll I'll give you what I know, which is say every month survey about 500 farmers across the country, and these are these are large scale commercial operations. So pro probably not some of the smaller ones that, that you mentioned before, Rachel. Um, mainly grain producers, but also have some livestock operators in there. And, and they ask a series of questions every month, but one of them just relates to sort of optimism about the future and also their perceptions of the current state of the ag economy. And I think like so much in the COVID era, era that index, that barometer has been extraordinarily volatile over the past ser series of months. So they had the largest, so we've been running it. Um, I'm gonna get the time frame wrong. It's probably been running for about five years now. And they saw the single largest monthly drop uh, in March, it's either March or April, but you know, following all the shutdowns that they have in their five-year history. So a lot of pessimism in the farm community about the impacts of COVID on the sector. And indeed, you could see you could you could see all the commodity prices were falling at about that same time period. Interestingly, their most recent release of that um, agrometer, uh, which was I think earlier this week or maybe last week, uh, actually shows it as high as it's ever been, which is crazy. <laughs> but there seems to be some optimism at the moment now how that's going to be affected. That was before the release of the, you know, the election results. So we, what that'll do to that index, I'm not sure. I think some of the interesting research questions that they're starting to delve into a little bit um, is there, that the, there's two components of that index, but one of them is current conditions. Sort of what do you think is happening right now? And there's some thought that that might be a leading indicator of, of farmers' willingness to make some investments in, say, farm machinery and some of those sorts of things. So I think that's some ongoing research, but there's some thought that, that that index might have some ability to foretell you know, farmers' willingness to invest in some technologies like that. So it's not just a random number. We think there is some validity to it at the end of the day, uh, but it's, it's hard to explain all of those swings, especially the, the big ones we've seen in the last few months. I should say, too, I, um, just to back up, there's a consumer sentiment index and people might've seen that before the University of Michigan have been running one since the 1950s. Um, and again, I think macroeconomists tend to watch that as sort of a signal of whether general, the general public is gonna make investments in the future, whether it's in housing or buying cars or those sorts of things. That index took the largest monthly decline they've observed in their 50 year history was from March to April. So it's not just, farms, but the general public also, you know, this it goes to show that this COVID was a extraordinarily big shock, both to the general, you know, consumer economy, but also to the farm economy as well. Well, and how do you think, because like you said, COVID was a shock everywhere. How do you think this is going to impact this industry in the future? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's, again, I think how well one did throughout this pandemic in a lot of ways depended on the extent to which your business relied on the food away from home market. And if it, if you rely a lot on, on sales of food away from home, you're, 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 you're probably pretty badly hurt and are still hurting pretty badly. I think for some of the more commodity organizations, there've been some dips that, that were affected there. I think in the meat sector, when the meat packing plants, uh, you know, closed down there in late, um, April, early May, that was, uh, a really tough time for those industries. I think the beef and mainly affected beef and pork, it didn't affect poultry as much. So I think those industries are still working their way out from some of that, but we've seen price improvements in some of those uh, sectors um, as, as different parts of the world have re recovered in different ways. So it's, it's really hard to tell, but I think we may see, for example, there's been, you know, who knows how this is all gonna shake out with the election that just occurred, but, there's been some legislation that's been introduced around, you know, claims of anti-competitive price behavior, that sort of thing with some of the price fluctuations we saw there. That's probably, those dynamics are going to probably stick around for a while. I'm not going to weigh in on the merits of some of those, but I think that that's a, a story that will continue to emerge. I mean, this impacts to ethanol that occurred because we were driving a lot less have had some pretty big uh, impacts going forward. But, but so I, th I think there are things that are going to stick around for a while, um, but it's, it's hard, hard to say what the future may look like. Well, and I, I was gonna say, I think also as economists, you know, we think a lot about change and how change occurs and where change affects uh, our, our behavior. 
And I think the big question is how much of this is transitory and how much is permanent. And so when there are definitely things that we have learned uh, through the COVID experience that we're going to want to apply going forward. So, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know how much, um, you know, thinking about things like, you know, professional organization meetings and stuff moving online, like how much of that is going to continue? Are are we going to see a reduction in, in that sort of um, uh, practices. And, you know, so I think a lot of things in terms of like the food and fiber and fuels that we consume, um, there may be some things that are not drastically different than before, but I think there'll be some things that we, that we see that we've learned that we want to continue. Yeah. I do think on the consumer side of things, it, it takes a little while for this to trickle back to the farm, but there was already a trend towards people buying more groceries online and, and delivery, but the pandemic just, you know, further accelerated that in a very big way that trend. And that's one that probably will stick with us. Now, what implications that has for, for the farm? And that's a little harder to see, but it will shape our food retail landscape in ways that I think um, were going to happen anyway, but probably, but just really further accelerated that and, and could, could make some really interesting changes for even the way we see grocery stores. For example, if we're buying a lot more of our you know, packaged food online that's delivered to store, you don't need a grocery store that big. You know, it could probably focus more on fresh kinds of products, meat and, and fresh fruits and vegetables. And so those kinds of changes, I, I suspect we're going to see on out in the future. And I think COVID probably helped push those in a way we might not have seen otherwise. So I think um, along the, the lines that we've talked about, you know, 2020 being more of a extremely volatile uh, year as far as things go, but farming in general is fairly volatile in a variety of different uh, graphs, markets, whatever, what may have you. Um, but what would you say to farmers as an economist about you know, just the general stress levels of them as they are in this extremely volatile economy and environment and industry? How do you, how do you approach that as they go forward into the future? Um, especially after seeing all of the things that have happened in 2020. Um, is there anything that you could say as far as the, the economy goes to kind of um, bring those stress levels down a little bit as far as, um, you know, prices and the, the way that the, the markets are moving even going forward, like we just talked about with COVID? So I, I would say on sort of a farm finance level that, uh, you know, there's a lot of great risk management tools out there, um, but a lot of times those risk management tools, you uh, give up some amount of freedom in your in your the way you manage a business. And so there, I mean, obviously things like uh, crop insurance, uh, but also you know contract production or uh, dealing you know marketing into niche products. That doesn't necessarily mean selling at a farmer's market, but you know are you going to grow seed on contract or produce some other kind of commodity on contract? And, and, and you lose a little bit of managerial flexibility there, but you can also uh, trade off some of your some of your volatility. You know, the other thing is, I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I work a lot in, in land tenure decisions and, you know, the move towards cash rental agreements as opposed to uh, share rent agreement. One of the things that does is it, it transfers some of that shared risk with your landlord directly onto the farmer. And so, you know, we see things like farmers that are participating in crop insurance are more likely to want to get involved in those sort of rental agreements because they've already been able to offload some portion of their risk in, in things like uh, price level or, or, or production volume. So, um, you know, l- looking at risk management, but understanding that, you know, risk, things like risk management or debt or contracting, you do lose a little bit of managerial freedom. And the reason a lot of people get into small business ownership is because they like to have that managerial freedom. And so, uh, but I don't know, I think a lot of it is sort of individual risk preference and tolerance. I think, I think Todd nailed it. And there's not, you can't get something for nothing. If you want to work, you want, if you want to reduce risk, you're going to give up something. I, I don't like paying my car and house insurance, but I'm, you know, I, that's the price I'm paying to reduce some of my risk on out in the future. Todd mentioned contract growing. I think a good example of that, a lot of, a lot of hog producers in Indiana, a big share of those would be contract producers. They, they give up their freedom, a lot of their autonomy about how they want to manage those hogs. But at the same time, when prices were cratering, you know, the livestock hog prices were cratering whenever packers were closed, weren't buying hogs. Well, they weren't hurt as much because they weren't, they weren't directly influenced by those price changes because they didn't own the hogs to begin with. They were being paid to, to feed them out. And so they, they, that's a great example of where they traded 
um, you know, some autonomy for a lot lower risk production. Now they may not get as many, you know, deliveries of hogs. They may, they're not like they're not, not going to take any loss, but not nearly the loss they would have experienced if they were relying on the cash market to sell their hogs. Yeah. I often tell my students that, you know, I refused to buy cell phone insurance when I bought my cell phone until my two-year-old threw my phone in the toilet and then I started buying it, you know? So uh, that's sort of the way these sort of insurance, I mean, uh, you know, Farmers, it's clear, would like to have something like a direct payment, uh, which insurance is not that. But, um, you know, all forms of insurance are, you can justify them, but there, but there, is a, there is something you're giving up by doing it. I think, you know, for me too, I think I mentioned this sort of not putting your, all your eggs in the same basket. I think this is the opposite side of reducing risk. But I think, you, you know, you also, by, by not doing anything new, that is a form of risk itself you know, maintaining the status quo. And so I think you have to be forward looking and being willing to make some investments in the future because you're, you're putting yourself at risk if you're just sitting still and whether it's a new crop, a new commodity, a new management practice, I think one has to be willing to try some new things and be a little bit innovative uh, because to not do that would also be risky. Right. And I hear a lot, I mean, I've seen farming from the heart, from a personal level. You're talking about a lot of, farming from the heads, just the, that smart farming. Where would somebody go to get more information? Like things you said, let's say my husband and I, we just bought um, a little bit of land and we've been talking about what to do with it. And if we don't, we're not farmers by trade. So where would we go to get more information? And where would farmers like myself or you know, wanting to, to get into it, where would they go? Purdue Extension, right? That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the perfect answer, right? No, I mean, I, I'm joking, but I'm serious too. I mean, I think we try to, as a as a university, put try to create information that's useful to people. And, and you know, in agricultural economics, we, we try to put out information to the Center for Commercial Ag and others about, um, about you know, price movements and commodity crops, but also some management related decisions. But there, you know, we're, all the departments and colleges in agriculture, I think, try to do a good job, whether it's horticulture, with you know talking about some specialty crops, and and you know on our side we try to help with some estimates of the the budget and returns to some of those. Um, so that's a I think that's a place to go, um, and it's you know and of course I think you should start at Purdue, but we're not we don't have a uh, there are other places that have good answers too, and so I think our sister land grants around the country often, you know, create good advice and, and good products that I think we can rely on as well. Yeah. And I think people are usually pretty good about uh, knowing their expertise and also being pretty much aware of the expertise of others. So you're know, thinking about our own department. We have um, folks that we mentioned uh, at the Center for Commercial Agriculture that work with uh, farms predominantly that, you know, support one or more households with their, with their enterprise. But then you know, we have, you know, things like the Purdue in, uh, family business. I always forget the name and mess up the name of it, but, but they deal with a whole range of small business owners. And some, a lot of those are farms, but they deal with, you know, a uh, very different sort of set of management questions and decisions. Uh, and so, you know, usually if you, if I wouldn't feel bad about maybe asking the wrong person, cause they usually know who the right person to ask is. So I get, I get questions steered to me all the time that somebody said, somebody asked me about this, but I think you should handle it. So. I, I agree with Todd there. Like, don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, we may not know the answers, but we can often connect connect uh, you with people that know more than we do. Yeah, that that's great because I think there is a lot of questions, especially when you're getting started in anything, or even if you've been doing it a long time. You talked about change, and there's a lot of change. Life is always changing. Technology's changing, and farmers are adapting to that. So. I've heard a lot of really interesting things um, moving forward. I know I personally learned a lot from listening to you two that I never knew before. And I think this area can be a little overwhelming and a little scary to some people because it is, it's your, your livelihood and you want to make sure you're making the right choices. And that can be stressful at times, but there is a lot of hope. You've mentioned optimism a couple of times here. What do you see moving forward as a very hopeful um, either movement or just the, the way the industry is shifting? What is something you see hoping? 
I mean, I think, um, you know, the global economy, we're in a recession right now. So, you know, I'm hopeful we can, there's some news already of a vaccine on the horizon and that sort of thing. You know, that'll, that'll help um, hopefully get the overall macro economy back in line, not just in this country, but abroad. And I think that's very positive news for us. Um, you know, increasingly we are selling to customers all over the world. And I think it's really important for us to, to be able to have access to folks where incomes are rising considerably. And so I think that's a point of optimism on my side. I think one of the great things that working at a place like Purdue, you get to see all these technologies that are being developed, the soil sensors, the digital ag, uh, kinds of tools, work that people are doing, like the microbiome, the biome of the soil, all these things is, is super exciting uh, to see. And so I think about those kind of things, both to help, in, you know, improve the bottom line of farms, but also improve, you know, the environmental aspects of, of farm production. All that's, I think, really exciting. It's what gets me excited about getting up and going to work every day. So I, it's really easy to be optimistic when you're a professor because we spend so much time around our students. Um, and for me, it's just uh, this, uh, the, the talent um, and interest level and expertise, the training that students are getting. I mean, um, I, you know, I I've routinely feel like with undergraduates interacting with that they have skills that I feel like I just picked up a year or two ago. Um, and, and they're so, uh, so much younger. And like, it's one of those things like, you know, like, man, if I, if I'd have known that at this age, at that age, you know, uh, but it, it I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of really talented people who have a lot of interest, you know, in, in training and technology and uh, that, that are going to maybe address these problems a little bit uh, differently. Um, and I think, you know, there's, a, there's definitely, you know, across the, the economy as a whole, but definitely within the ag sector, we're, we're dealing with a transition, uh, a demographic transition from the baby boomers who are younger and then the are, are aging out. And then we have the uh, millennials and generation Z coming in behind and they're both two big chunks of the population. And so, I mean, I think we're gonna see a lot of places where there are younger people making management decisions uh, just be based, based on the demographics. It's gonna switch from someone who's, uh, who's uh, more senior to someone who's very young uh, without that sort of slow trickle down we've seen in previous generations where you know, all decisions are made by people kind of in their 40s and 50s and, 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 it, and you, you wait for your chance there and then you kind of age out. We're gonna have a lot more just sort of rapid uh, change. And so, uh, you know, dealing with the young people and, and across the state, uh, I, we, we maybe will still have the problems, but I think we'll have uh, interesting ways to approach them. Todd's answer is the right one. Our students are amazing. I'm consistently impressed <laughs> by our students. Yeah. I just, I, yeah. It, each time I meet a new one, I'm, I'm, uh, I think I've found the best one. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, I love to hear that. And that is optimistic because it is an, a new group coming in and you guys are shaping them, which is amazing. You're, you're teaching them all these great things that they wouldn't have known otherwise. So you guys are doing a great job. It sounds like there's some really cream of the crop coming out of Purdue. And that's amazing to hear. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with us, to teach us about what you do and giving advice. I felt this has been very insightful and I'm sure our listeners feel that same way. So thank you. And before we head on out of here, um, is there any upcoming events that you would like to talk about or uh, projects you wanna share? I'll mention a couple of things. Our, uh... Center for Commercial Agriculture, they do a top farmer workshop every year. I think it's planned this year in, um, in January. They're moved, moved virtual this year, so that might be something for folks to keep an eye out for, to register for that. Um, in terms of projects, we've had all kinds of interesting projects out of the department sort of in response to COVID. We've got one that's, that should be coming out in the next month or so that tried to uh, provide an estimate of the impacts of COVID on Indiana agriculture. So that's a project we're doing for Agrinovus Indiana. So keep an eye out for that for the next month. I was able to work on a project with some others uh, to create a, a tool we call the, uh, what do we call that tool? The Food and Agricultural Vulnerability Index, essentially trying to estimate the impacts of COVID on farm workers, both farmers and hired farm labor. And um, that's, a, that's one we continue to update and, and have some work going there. The good news is it looks like um, 
impacts on actual production from farm worker illnesses is fairly small, but that doesn't mean that the, the people affected aren't, you know, aren't, aren't having some significant impact there. But, but anyway, so as far as I know, that's the only effort nationwide to provide a daily updated estimate of the number of farm workers that have, have come down with COVID. So uh, I know there's a lot more going on in the department, but those are some of the first things that come to my mind for folks to look out for. One, I, one last thing, uh, you folks can sign up for our depart, uh, agricultural economics department newsletter. So if they go to the Purdue agricultural economics department, we, every month we put out a newsletter and folks can see all the, all the great things that our faculty like Todd are doing. That, that's a, it's actually fun for me to get to come on this podcast with Todd because I get to hear what he's doing. So um, that, that's, that's neat too. Yeah, and uh, another plug for a department product, I'm uh, involved with a, uh, we have a quarterly publication called the Purdue Agricultural Economics Report, um, which you can find on our website. And uh, our more, uh, the, re the issue that's coming up soon will be coming out in uh, early December, and that'll be an outlook for 2021. Um, so that'll include all kinds of ag, commodity, and price outlook, but also policy, uh, trade, rural economy, uh, farm finance, sort of any, any, one of the challenges with our department, it's such a diverse place that those of us that interact with it, uh, you maybe only think about it in terms of the people that you know or the projects that interest you, but uh, PAR gives a really good snapshot of all the breadth of, of topics that we cover in, in, uh, in ag and food and uh, environmental and policy, uh, trade development. Uh, so there's a lot of great work coming out there. So keep keep an eye on that, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, Todd just took over as editor of that publication and uh, gave it a new, nice, shiny look. So um, oh, I, that that was that was all the great staff we have here at Building. <laughs> uh, I just knew when to say that looks great. And so one more time, just so everybody, because you've mentioned so many and amazing things and where can people go to get all this information again i'm looking up the website right now hold on yeah i always just google purdue Aggie. <laughs> sorry i hate to put you on the spot but yeah so if you go to ag.purdue.edu backslash agicon then you can find most of the materials that we that we've referenced there or just, uh, or just Google Jason Lusk and email him directly. He'll send <laughs> that. That will work too, actually. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much again, Jason and Todd. And thank you all for listening to Tools for Today's Farmer podcast. If you would like more information about the Purdue Extension Farm Stress Team, you can find us online at extension.purdue.edu slash farm stress, or you can find us on Facebook as the Purdue Extension Farm Stress Team. We use the hashtag FarmStrong on all of our posts to emphasize that the agriculture community is resilient and is strong enough to overcome anything that comes their way. Share your story of overcoming stress on social media using the hashtag FarmStrong. Thank you so much again. And I'm your host, Rachel Dillhoff, joined by Abby Heidenreich. And thanks for joining us.